Apple Knocker Radio. Greetings, my friends. I hope you are all doing well. My next guest is a gentleman that I've long dreamed of chatting with. Tobias Churton is one of the world's most prolific authors on the subjects of religion, spirituality, and esotericism. To date, he's produced nearly 30 books on these subjects. Today, we're discussing his most recent book, The First Alchemists. It traces alchemy from its mysterious appearance in ancient Egypt, through its evolution from a set of techniques for commerce, to its applications as a set of spiritual concepts. Along the way, Churton slays some sacred cows of alchemy, including Carl Jung's interpretations, or misinterpretations, and the nature of the Philosopher's Stone itself. And so, with no further ado, here is Tobias Churton on his book, The Last Alchemist, which I heartily recommend to anyone interested in these subjects. Thank you very much, my friends. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Nick, I, I read your book. Um, wow, it's, it covers so much information. It's, a, it's an incredible. Um, I guess, well, my first question would be, so you mentioned in there, you compare alchemy to a Gordian knot of confused history that you uh, felt compelled to unravel. And um, so I'm curious, you also mentioned later in the book, which I really like about how if you look up on Google what alchemy is, the definition is woefully inadequate and how most of these definitions out there are inadequate or sometimes just inaccurate. So you having slayed so many of these sacred cows of alchemy, how would you now summarize alchemy to somebody who's never heard of it before? Um, I'd say that Alchemy began as metallurgical chemistry. And the understanding that it was rooted in industry uh, was um, forgotten over the centuries. And a lot of its ideas were turned into symbolism and then into a kind of fantastic, in the old sense of the word fantastic, i.e. a fantasy, a fantasy of uh, a magical transformation. And while it had a great deal to contribute to the beginnings of chemist, scientific chemistry, uh, sadly, at the, at the point that scientific chemistry became of great interest to intellectuals in Europe in the 16th and 17th century, and, and broke through as a separate science in the 18th century um at that very point alchemy alchemical traditions became dislocated entirely from science and so it became even more uh, redundant and a new level of incomprehension was attached to it whereby science would look down on alchemy as being a product of superstitious ignorance but it starts as a product of enormous ingenuity and inventiveness in the human mind yeah you that's not a that's not a definition is it that's really describing <laughs> a process because i don't think you can there isn't a single definition for alchemy unless because it, it it it's the perception of it changes over different ages so you'd have to define it in terms of a period so you'd say late antique alchemy in the late roman empire was metallurgical chemistry with often expressed using symbols 
<coughs> and then it becomes more symbolic, except in Arabic alchemy, where the, the leading exponents were actually investigating and experimenting with the production of acids and alkalis and, and its use in medicine. Mm -hmm. And then it changes again. And then there's a kind of Masonic or Rosicrucianist alchemy. And then you've got, uh, in our era, uh, you've got this psychologizing of alchemy by Carl Jung, which unfortunately I read about and influenced me too much for many years. I rather regret reading uh, Jung's psychology and alchemy without the technical knowledge that I acquired later. But, you know, you've got to start somewhere. Right. Now, you, now you can start with my book. <laughs> Well, it definitely is a great launching point. That was actually, you know, the, I had a question about the Jung, um, what you say about Jung, because that is, I think his, I think largely because Jordan Peterson has kind of resurrected Carl Jung's work in a lot of ways for people. I think a lot of what people understand about alchemy is from Jung. And, um, and you point out that his, to my interpretation of your writing, he misinterpreted some previous dreamed writing about dreams yes i think i think he made he he made too much out of the fact that part of the record of zosimus of panopolis who lived around 300 a.d common era um he 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 used the literary convention of a series of dreams to describe changes uh within within substances uh, and Jung in my view uh, misunderstood what he was reading and thought that Zosimus was actually writing down his own dreams and I think he said he regards these dream passages as very significant uh, historical records some of the earliest uh, detailed uh, descriptions of people's dreams which for Jung became a teaching point about the nature of the unconscious so he he and he didn't seem to grasp at all that that uh, Zosimus knew exactly what he was doing that he was using using a literary convention um and uh, i think jung came to the altogether the wrong conclusion he said that the alchemists projected their unconscious onto their chemical uh, work in other words um the alchemists or chemists, I would say, or, operation, or operators, uh, didn't realize <laughs> that they were they they were seeing changes in 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 mercury and tin and gold and silver and so forth, uh, and and they were making them meaningful without realizing what they were doing. Uh, I don't think that's true at all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jung, of course, has given us this word projection, which is taken straight out of al alchemy. A projection is simply means an ingredient. So mm. if you project something in in the in original chemistry, it simply means you've added an ingredient. Now he took the word projection as being something that the uh, the the mind um, maybe automatically mm. uh, imposes on a perception, and he was trying to say that uh, in in that sense that people's experience of chemistry was. Uh, turned inside out by the activity of the unconscious uh but he, he if you really go into it you realize he it doesn't it, you can't do that um you'd have to say then that any 
uh, activity that we do was a, a projection of the unconscious. So um, making dinner uh, could become a profound <laughs> revelation on that basis or cooking, <laughs> cooking eggs. Uh, uh, and he, he'd failed to see that because he took it for granted, again, mistakenly, that very often the practitioners didn't have a conception of what they were doing with the ingredients in their crucibles or on their in their aludels or what was happening with distillation. And there's absolutely no evidence at all that they were mystified by what they were doing. They, they were no more mystified by it than a sword maker was mystified by uh, tempering steel. Mm. Once they'd learned how to do it and they'd read the recipe and the recipe worked, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a mystery. And I think he, he re-mystified uh, alchemy. Now that appeals to a kind of post-60s mentality, um, the idea of a mystification that carries a hidden truth or an elusive, elusive meaning. I mean, that's um, people would say, for example, that the Beatles, for example, there was an alchemy in the group, hmm. uh, which is another way of saying there was a mystery about how the four personalities work together as a musical and as a, as a phenomenon. And you can use the word alchemy in that way. Um, but that, that's, that's, again, is, is mystification. I wanted to, to penetrate this aura of mystery which has surrounded the subject uh, not because I, I'm object to mystery, but very far from it. Um, a, mis a mystery means something that the more you go into, the more you discover. Mm. Um, but some things we mystify at our peril. We're losing reality. We're losing important realities by mystifying them. Mm. I mean, the whole the whole subject of what I've spent my adult life uh, in researching and developing in the whole field of esoteric wisdom. Uh, is is packed with real mystery and at the same time a hell of a lot of mystification and uh, I, I want to, I want to pe people to be able to pick up a book and if they're really interested work out what it is what these things really are you know and the, and the same goes for religion doesn't it I mean uh, if you take the mystery out of religion for many people there's nothing there there's nothing left um, so the life of Jesus is a mystery and uh, and so on. Now, I, I dare say there is truth in this, but there is also a hard reality as well that we, we, we uh, shouldn't miss. You know, it's. Um, I, I do understand, I do understand the, the urge for mystification. <laughs> But it's lead. It leads to some extraordinary uh, um, diversifications of energies. I'd, I'd put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the occult and esoteric worlds tend to be very guarded about their uh, separation from other other fields of knowledge. Alistair Crowley was very interesting to me because he he brought what was called in those days the occult into the field of science of science and was looking for a science of the spirit a, a, a demonstrable knowledge in other words uh, if you do certain things certain things happen and if you can show that this happens all the time if you do certain things you have science it's not a mystery anymore um, 
Well, that's like Steiner too. He he's you know he stressed that applying the science of spirituality, uh, applying a scientific mindset to uh, looking into mysticism and matters of the spirit. Uh, whether or not he achieved that himself, I guess, is up for debate, but uh, he did. <laughs> I just listened to a bunch of lectures where he talked about um, the importance of applying scientific method to spirituality, which I thought was an interesting concept. Yes, he, he called it what he did, spiritual science. Right. Um, well, why is it spiritual science? Why, why, why isn't it just science? Hmm. Um, but yes, he tried, he tried, he tried to what he was saying, I think he was trying to um, bring a kinship between science, which for many people was threatening in the 19th century, because very often it's not the science, it's the theories behind the science that cause the problems. Um, nobody objects to people doing experiments uh, in physics and chemistry. They object to the conclusions that some scientists come to, which they say underpin those things and science had become threatening to spiritual ideas and spiritual beliefs uh, certainly by the end of the 19th century and uh, Steiner in his usual ironic and and harmonious attitude wanted to bring these together which was of course also the aim of Madame Blavatsky and Olcott and the theosophists and and of course Steiner was a theosophist Crowley also uh, knew a lot about theosophy he never joined the order and he didn't he didn't like many of the theosophists he encountered that's not, certainly not all but most of the people he encountered later had been into seriously into theosophy including the founders of the hermetic order of the golden dawn mm. so he always regarded blavatsky as a pioneer um but had little time for her, uh, blavatsky's followers mm. but, so, but this this interest in science and its relationship uh to um magic is 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 fascinating in itself and we mentioned jung and jung of course was trying to produce a science of the mind uh, psychology and um a lot of occultists today or people sympathetic to esotericism um always like to throw in a bit of science you know to say um as science has shown da 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 dum you know and they can throw a little bit of science that, that they feel that if they could just let the word science appear, it makes their beliefs more respectable. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, 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 I was thinking of Pico della Mirandola, the great uh, philosopher of, of Renaissance Florence in the 1490s and 1480s, particularly, because he, he didn't live to see much of the 1490s. Um, he, uh, he, in one of his, condemned theses theses that's th not f uh, one of his condemned theses that the pope uh, forbade he said that um jesus worked his miracles through magic which one day human beings in general would be able to discover the science of the knowledge of um so he was he was kind of predicting that a lot of things that are, look looked magical only looked so because we were ignorant of the forces involved hmm. um and it's very you know there's so many ramifications of these thoughts uh any child who sees something it can't immediately understands immediately thinks it's magical in some way and as we get older we get a bit more cynical and we the world becomes disenchanted 
and it's this is one of the great mental problems of of the minds of people in the world not just in the west but now in the east as well very much so is this feeling of a of a disenchanted world the enchantment's gone out of it um we're, we're faced with a materialism uh, appearances count hugely uh, any twit who sings a song or appears on television uh, is called an icon now the word icon was all it, the word only means image anyway that's, that's mm. the greek word icon image but it is used to as an alternative to the word famous mm. of somebody acquiring notoriety or is recognized in some way um, but it's fascinating that this is this icon idea is being foisted on more and more worthless characters and cert certain images are called iconic well that's only say literally you're saying an image is an image is an image you know uh, the first lesson of the prophets of the old testament was don't worship images hmm. you know so why are we worshiping images because in a way we're trying to, if we look at it in jungian terms people are projecting a lost enchantment right. onto material images and so the need for magic uh, is ne is never going to go away uh, mm -hmm. in that in that sense. Um, but we it, it helps if you under, understand what you're doing when you do these things when you when you project enchantment. I mean, Andy Warhol was fascinating because the way he used his experience of Catholic iconography to paint these portraits which he was doing in the seventies of repeated portraits of uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, 60s and 70s, Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor. And he's so, kind of implying that today's religious imagery is a commercially reproducible product. And there's a wonderful irony in that. And he, he's playing with the word icon in that sense. But of course, the media being perennially thick-headed, uh, simply take the word icon and mis misapply it now to practically anything hmm. oh the iconic photo oh the iconic image oh the iconic band oh the iconic song oh the oh please enough I, in away with your images tear them down <laughs> you know? so right. uh, so alchemy has an image and uh, i've i've tried to tear the image down and reveal something far more astounding and stunning which was which is lost knowledge of of what I call in the book uh, a minor industrial revolution going on in Upper Egypt in the uh, the Roman period after after 30 BC after the death of Mark Antony and Cleopatra and when uh, the Romans took over Egypt and and held it for uh, 300 or so years with some intermittent periods and. Uh, these people, very intelligent uh, Egyptians, were entering a field of chemistry that uh, was pre previously undeveloped. And a lot of that has to do with the technology that was available and their use of it. I was surprised to find in my studying the subject that um, glass blowing, if you ask somebody, well, when do you think glass blowing? first occurred and people you know glass blowing creating long glass vessels and mm -hmm. so forth and i'd have thought it was very ancient i'd have thought it went back a long way because I, I think of ancient vases and things like that 
one imagines that they always existed. Well, it, it turned out that glass blowing only appears in the first century BCE, again, around the time of Cleopatra, Mark Antony, and Herod the Great, uh, the famous Herod of the Christmas story. Um, and the earliest examples of glass were found in Jerusalem. Glass blowing were found in Jerusalem, which is also fascinating because there's a strongly Jewish element in the development of what we was later called alchemy in Egypt. There were Jewish communities all over Egypt, and indeed, until 73, I think 73 or 74 AD, there was a Jewish temple in the Nile Delta. And I don't mean a synagogue, I mean a temple uh, on a par. Uh, when it was founded with uh, in the second century BC on a par with Jerusalem. And it was still there. We know precious little about it, but it was obviously important. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. You have the story of Jesus when Herod the Great threatens uh, the line of David, which is perfectly credible story. Um, it, according to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus is taken to Egypt for safety, and people don't really ask why. Why Egypt? Why not Syria? You know, why not uh, why not um, uh, one of the Arab countries around or some or somewhere else? There was plenty of places it could have gone, but this this notion that you went to Egypt for uh, a different Jewish experience to what was available under the reign of Herod the Great in, in uh, what was uh, Palestine, as the Romans called that area, Judea, more specifically, land of the Jews. Um, yeah, the, the, the Jew, Jewish technological input seems to be very significant. There's a, there's, I was delighted to learn about a lady who later became known as Mary the Prophetess, or Mariam, she's a Jewish woman living in Alexandria, and she she is credited by Zosimus, who, who is probably the greatest exponent of the techniques we know about. He defers to Mary on many, many occasions, says she she is the one who explains to us what distillation is. She understood she developed apparatus, she was a real original. And you have to ask the question, well, then why why were and she was not the only woman? Uh, I would say that in terms of the names of operators of this craft and art, the most noble and holy art, as they call it, um, women almost dominate. Uh, they don't dominate, but they're, they're on an equal par with the male uh, operators. So you have, we hear about Paphnutia the Virgin, uh, was another operator who Zosimus ridicules, uh, Theosabia, perhaps a, a god-fearer, meaning a a non-Jew who's a, attached to the Jewish faith, and um, a Mary herself, and another lady called Cleopatra, uh, um, not the uh, Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> version. But uh, so it, I think this gives us a big clue to the to where this activity we later call alchemy resides, and it belongs in the world of textiles and ornamentation. Um, Zosimus isn't called Zosimus of Panopolis for nothing. Uh, Panopolis, even today, and it's now called Akmim, um, Panopolis was famous and, as a then and now for textiles. And uh, dyeing is what the craft is really all about. You are making dyes. 
So when they talked about making gold and making silver, um, uh, you are talking about um, uh, the development of dyeing technologies to make things look gold or look silver or look like an emerald. So they would dye stones and you look like lapis, lapis lazuli or uh, gold or emeralds or rubies. Now, in another way, you could say they were faking. These were counterfeiters. And I, I'm sure there must have been operators who convinced themselves um, or tried to convince others anyway that they had actually made the gold. Mm. Um, the, the tests for gold in, at that time were quite basic. And if you were really smart, you could outwit the test and people would take uh, a, a chemical compound for gold. Mm. But of course, the interesting thing is gold was not the most valuable uh, thing in the world. Right. That was an interesting thing that you speak about in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the scale of values of the, uh, the Roman Empire were, were that the things that had been made and developed by man were more valuable. In other words, if they showed real artistry, that's what gave the product its value. So people would pay gold or silver coins for an art object, as they do today. Um, you know, so so this idea that if you could make gold, you 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 would have unlimited wealth and, and this sort of thing is is really a misunderstanding. Hmm. Um, if you if you were good at this art, you you acquired a lot of gold or silver. You became rich. Zosimus is quite plain that if you're a good, he didn't use the word I keep saying, uh, but we're gonna use the word alchemist. If you were good at it, you would become very rich indeed. Uh, so um, there's the story that John of Antioch tells that uh, in the reign of Diocletian, which is in the, the third century AD, Diocletian was concerned about the money that rebels in Egypt were getting and attributed it to uh, alchemy. And he had all the books in alchemy. He ordered them all to be burned which is quite credible. Now, if they had actually been making gold, he wouldn't have had the books burned. He would have, he would have acquired them for himself and made sure that every alchemist uh, was working for him in Rome. Uh, he wouldn't have suppressed this knowledge. The fact is that they, they, the, the, the art, this art was, was so lucrative that they had money to spare to, to give to, well, he believed, uh, to give to rebels. So it was funding rebellion another interesting aspect of of the history there and i th i think something must have happened to the uh the the books on alchemy because we have so little left um such that by the seventh century i think when they start the byzantines in what's now today istanbul was then constantinople um started to acquire alchemical literature it was regarded most of all is philo philosophical it was of interest to philosophers and uh, religious men and it, it became the province of monks and the church um, so that something must have happened between 300 and 6 700 um, apart from the collapse of the roman empire um, for people to not really understand that the setting of these recipes as they were called hmm. hundreds of alchemical recipes the word recipe is also interesting isn't it because 
again, you've got women dominating. Well, they dominate the textile industry as they do today and uh, cooking, of course. So the real work, the meaning of kumia or kumia, which is the word that they used, the Greek word is kumia or kimia, seems to be, you can stop me anytime, by the way, because I, I feel like, I fear I'm rambling. But anyway, uh, the the meaning of is, is is as far as I can tell, um, to do with blackening uh, and dark and roasting, mm. um, and the Hebrew word is very similar to the uh, to the to the Egyptian word and the Mesopotamian word for um, for dark. So you have, um, uh, uh, yeah, it's the art of roasting. It really means the, uh, yeah, let's be clear that this kumia, the, the origin of our word chemistry, chemistry, kumia, kimia, is the art of heat. It's the art of roasting. It's what happens as we, you know, if you heat a thing enough, it becomes black. That's the first effect that we really recognize right. on substances is the blackening. Uh, likewise, if you left the body out in the sun, uh, uh, and the sun is in the south and it's, it goes black. Carbonization. They were fascinated by this idea that while on the first level, um, roasting a thing could effectively apparently destroy it, it also has other huge range of other possibilities that if you apply sufficient heat to certain substances, that substance changes and becomes something else and the color which is what they're looking at they're really interested in, the color changes and they're fascinated by these color changes of, of what happens with certain substances mm -hmm. and 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 that's really what it's about that's the, that's that's the art it's the art of of transforming color and in, in other words dye point, making at some point it did um obviously you uh, with zosimos i think it began at zosimos but if i remember correctly or it began to become a little more abstracted and, and that's when it began to become more like into the spiritual aspects. And then you write specifically about how Gnostic thought and alchemical thought influenced each other. Um, or actually, was, you, you suggest it was more the Gnostics taking alchemical processes, which were industrial and commercial, and making them spiritual. Is, is that correct? No, I think there's a, there, I know I, I don't I, that's too simplistic. Uh, okay. I, I think there, I think there's a real interaction and it's absolutely obvious from the, I was very happy to translate into English, many, m many for the first time in this book, a whole load of documents which have never been in English before, uh, and showed that Zosimus's thought, it, while he's, 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 he's red hot, so to speak, on, on, on the chemical and, and scientific aspect of the operation, he himself understands it through a prism of Gnostic ideas among other ideas. He's very much absorbed uh, ideas from Jewish prophecy and, okay. and Jewish ethics uh, and, and Jewish history very much so, including the Book of Enoch, which is, which is another fascinating aspect. But he, he seems to be aware of some of the <clears throat> heretical ideas that we have seen uh, from the Nag Hammadi Library, the so-called Gnostic Library of Upper Egypt. And there seems to me to be a, a complete atmosphere that something was going on culturally in Upper Egypt particularly, but also in Alexandria uh, and with relatives in Syria as well. But there's there's something 
very exciting happening in the second and third century where you're getting the development of these um, uh, so-called Gnostic gospels at the same time as the height of alchemy. Mm. Uh, it, 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 it's it, that now this 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 is a very you know you've got it i'm trying to think of a an, an interesting parallel and the first one that comes to my mind and there could be there's quite a few others but the one was the 1960s where you get a huge amount of technological creativity bound up with an atmosphere of philosophical um exploration um the quintessential i mentioned earlier the beatles the, the quintessential uh uh they're 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 kind of, they they kind of exemplify that that you have the making of something the making of music uh and you also the making of an image and the fascination with pictures and the power of imagery at the same time uh you have all that technology you've also got the philosophical interest in gnostic ideas again and in so-called indian philosophy and all of that is all in in a huge mix with mytholo mythology religion uh, different religions and so on. And I think you've got something, a kind of proto movement of that in Upper Egypt at this time, because all of the documents that that are key to our understanding of early alchemy are found in the Thebaid, which is the area around Thebes. And it so happens that nearly all our early Gnostic literature is also from that precise area and from the same period. Now, this has not really been remarked upon, still less explored. Mm. Uh, it's also the area where we find the earliest copies of the Gospels and and uh, so, and religious writings, some of some of which were not included in our our Bibles, some of which were. It's clear, clearly there was some kind of um, atmosphere of dare, daring and uh, almost um, reckless thinking going on in this area which suggests that there was a lot of money about because whenever there's a lot of money you, you, people become freer with their thinking very often you know if they, they, they there was must have been a period of great confidence mm. uh, and because you, one thing Irenaeus who was bishop of Lyon in 180 AD complained about the so what he called the so-called Gnostics <clears throat> was that they were original he, he he regarded it as the great error was that they were original they had originality they come up with theories for the whole universe and in one of their writings the, the gospel of philip as we call it uh he um god is compared to a dyer and he also says that matthew was a dyer someone who dies i you know makes colors mm -hmm. uh dies dies textiles or dye stones and he, he then compares in the writing baptism uh, the idea of baptism as a form of dye and therefore the most perfect dye is christ once you are dyed in that you are well dyed you know it's a permanent dye right so that very interesting um use of, of of dying as a metaphor for the transformation of the soul is in the gnostic gospels it's also in zosimus who see who he, he, he says not only is this great art to make all the different colors he is very specific he said don't stop with gold and silver we want every kind of color represented through this art that's what we're all about at the same time he's uh, giving the techniques uh, connected with that 
he's saying, but you will miss everything if you don't also recognize that this pro these processes we're dealing with tell us something about the way God makes the universe. Mm. Now, and then you get into some very interesting territory because he takes from the writings of Mary, Mariam, the prophetess. She was called that, by the way, because she said God had taught her everything she knew about uh, alchemy, uh, about chemistry. And she she's quite specific that it's for her, her, her originality was the product of revelation. God revealed this knowledge to her. God uh, showed her the way. God is the light. And um, now this is very, this is really quite a fascinating area, uh, which I go into in the book in, in several chapters. And I'd rather people read the book than listen to me just talk about it because the detail, the detail is telling. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> it, it, it's, it's, it's transformative knowledge. You, I, I find those passages, I, I can read them again and again and, and, and getting more of off them all the time. Um, Zosimus is, is comparing Mary's description of what she calls the bodies. When she refers to bodies, she means tin, copper, uh, iron, um, and then there are the incorporeals, mm -hmm. not bodies. These are substances usually uh, soft or liquidy, or which disappear in alchemical processes and can be um, evaporated. And she talks about that you have to, the, and she then says the bodies are male and the incorporeals or spirits, as she calls them, interesting again, you've got body, spirit, dualism, have to become one hmm. as the male and the female. So the incorporeal is called the female. And you've got passages in the Gospel of Thomas, unless the male and the female become one, you know, all of that, you've got that idea. Uh, and the, so the mystery of the Gospel of Thomas, I suspect, is taken from an observation of alchemy, mm. or it's the other way around. And they have been applying Gnostic ideas to chemical processes. Either way, it's clear that in for some period in, in late Roman Upper Egypt, it was impossible for the best practitioners to separate spiritual knowledge from what they would call material, uh, what we call material knowledge. In other words, they, they were one. Right. The, the doing alchemy was a spiritual discipline for those who saw it that way. And so Simus is fascinating again, because he then warns against taking this uh, divine analogy of spirit and, and matter too far. He says there are many alchemists who believe they have to placate the demons. It was believed practically everywhere at this period that the material universe, the, the creation, was governed uh, by by demons. They, they got, there were the, the decans. Uh, every minute of the day had its own demon, and there, there were also there were sort of good demons who were interchangeable with the idea of angels. And then, of course, there were also wicked demons who inhabited the dark places of Earth. And they get that idea out of the Book of Enoch. Uh, which was a, an important uh, Jewish text and clearly had a lot of currency in, in Egypt uh, for a long time. Um, seven, seven copies of this of the Book of Enoch were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is that fact alone is revolutionary, revolutionizing our 
the uh, perception of the importance of the Book of Enoch. Ah. So, so Simus seems to be totally familiar with it, and he attributes uh, the the teaching of alchemy originally to these rebel angels who've fallen. You re can read about them in Genesis chapter six, who've fallen out of uh, uh, out of heaven for their lust for human women, mm. and by by the product of that lust is uh, is according to the book of enoch a series of giants and when god destroys the giants in the great flood um because they came because their fatherhood their paternity was from heaven their spirits remain which is why they have to be when they're punished they have to be in an everlasting lake of fire because the spirit can't die so if you want to punish an evil spirit you have this is where this idea of the well you know all bad people would be put in a lake of fire forever it's it's not they're not being tortured eternally because they're bad the, this, the, the theory was that because the evil spirit cannot actually be totally destroyed the only thing you can do with it is to keep it in this lake of fire forever that's fascinating. So that that itself is fascinating isn't it yeah. and uh, yeah because of course you know it, people who read the book of revelation i know in america that's millions uh, and whose religions almost is totally influenced by that one uh, uh i think george bernard shaw called it the judas of the new testament uh, <laughs> but anyway that's that's an opinion um if you understand the book of revelation in terms of the book of enoch you start to get to what it's really all about and it isn't about eternal punishment of the sinner in in quite the way in quite the way that the uh, Catholic and Protestant religions have been portraying it for centuries, you know, um, which does make God into a kind of sadist who takes pleasure from the from the mm -hmm. from the evil done to the evil. Um, oh, it's it's justice, you know, um, because there's a umpteen uh, uh, prophecies which speak of a, a God is merciful and who doesn't say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and so on. Um, though back to, back to the demons. Yeah. It was a says these people who invoke, evoke demons, uh, and feel that they can't do these processes without demonic help said what you're actually giving, you're giving your soul to these entities mm -hmm. and they will always trick you and they will not give you the right dies and uh he, he he then attacks the egyptian temple religion which is also fascinating and he says that these statues that people worship these are the product of misplaced uh chemistry and because they've been made with the help of demons demons inhabit these statues and to worship them is to fall into 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 sin and fall into error now that's also interesting because people have thought and some scholars still hold the view for some reason that uh Osimus was a temple priest i don't see him as that at all i see him as a freelancer whose comments about the temple system are almost universally critical mm. and he said that the temples had the had the knowledge of chemistry but they either kept it to themselves or abused it uh and he seems to be advocating a, a kind of an, an an independent spiritual context in which the chemistry finds its flower in which it can flower and develop and grow. And prior uh, to Zosimos, prior to Zosimos, um, it, it seems like it was a purely commercial industrial art as far as the records indicate. Is that is that correct? 
we can we can say with certainty that our earliest documents um, of alchemical uh, chemical recipes are um, entirely practical, entirely right. practical, and those those are contained in two sets which were related, which are related. One's called the Stockholm Papyri because it was bought by uh, the uh, one of the great institutions of, of Sweden, and the other is the Leiden. Uh, papyri, which was bought by uh, Leiden University uh, Museum, and that's where these papyri now are. But they were found in the Thebaid. They date from around late third century, maybe very early fourth. Uh, it's impossible to date them absolutely, um, but around the time, funnily enough, of Zosimus. Hmm. But they are. But they, the the sources. Uh, go back to probably the first century AD, so Jesus, Paul time, um, Caligula time, um, you know, Tiberius, that, that period. Uh, In those earliest records, how how complete did it appear to be as a uh, industrial method or however you want, as a science, however you want to say it? Um, was it like very rudimentary compared to the developments or in those earliest texts did it seem to be a uh, a workable science if we could use that term yeah 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 it's 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 it, it's a workable science and um they are recipes they you know if you want to make gold you do this and it, again i must emphasize this these passages about making gold were, t were misunderstood later as meaning that they were actually transforming transmuting right. um uh, lower metals into higher metals they were not doing this they were trying to make gold color or effective yeah, gold dye the whole that, philosopher stone that's what most people know that was one of the things that amazed me most when i read read your book was like wow that's that's like the sacred cow of alchemy <laughs> turns yeah. out turns out that it was completely false it's a, a complete misunderstanding of certain passages uh mostly in zosimus's work uh, he refers to a summer stone and another passage you'll refer to the stone which is not a stone well i i would imagine he's describing mercury the hmm. stone which is not a which is a great mystery the great mystery right. uh because you know as depending on the temperature whether mercury is a solid or uh very easily becomes liquid mm -hmm. and uh they'd learned how to extract mercury from cinnabar in fact in the book i also talk about recent experiments by chemists yeah in, i was going to ask as, about that that's fascinating stuff man. well they've actually found found that um for example in cold and, and, and hot extractions of, of mercury from cinnabar the original Greek uh, writings gave information that was not known to contemporary science. And that's amazing. The, the importance, for example, of, of heating uh, the cinnabar in an iron vessel. Turns out that the iron's critical to the the, the quality of, of, of the extraction. That, but and and that's written into these uh, these early documents. Uh, but it you won't find it in you know contemporary so in fact uh, they they have they obviously had knowledge that uh, in some areas that that we don't have today i mean th these recipes are not all uh, quite like you know a recipe for making uh, ratatouille or or an omelet or something like that take two eggs they're very similar but very often they i think they were keeping certain facts out of it or they presumed they they're more like notes on recipes rather than first do this, then do that, then do that. It's presumed that I think these were aid memoir. They, these were to stimulate the memory of the operator 
who'd already would have been shown how to do these things. Teaching in those days was always very hands-on. A master or mistress showed you what to do and you had to remember. And I think these recipes were to help you remember. Um, so and, of in, course, in, and of course, the trade would have had secrets as well. They wouldn't write everything down necessarily. Right. So in, in reading your book, one might come away thinking um, that the idea is that alchemy was actually a practical art. And then people began to uh, incorrectly read too much into it, too much abstraction, too much spirituality. Um, and I'm just curious because it's always I've I've been reading your work for a long time and it's it's clear to me that you're a scholar, but you're also a seeker yourself. Mm -hmm. And so how do you perceive alchemy now that that you you see how this evolved? Do you do you see the spiritual insights as being like legitimate in any way, or is it a total yeah, very much so? Okay. Yeah, I think I think so because I mean uh, before I investigated uh alchemy separately am, am i coming through yes, sir, yes sir. yeah yeah um <laughs> uh, before i investigated see i i i've, I've been drenched I, a, a lot of years in the eight 1980s and 90s in the rosicrucian tradition and i found that the use of alchemical imagery for describing the uh enlightenment of the soul very helpful uh and uh there is i think Simus is right that if you observe natural processes there is a spiritual analog all the time and that and that the certain scientists have that gift to see that and certain scientists just simply see it as a in in a in an objective manner as we say as objects doing things with objects uh, other people are sensitive to to meaning when we're talking about the spiritual development of man we are talking about something that is invisible in its essence but which affects the world uh, a spiritually enlightened person will make an, a, an impact on the world, even if you can't see the wind that blows in the sail. Mm. So it, you, the use of alchemical imagery, I think, is a legitimate aspect of the history of the science. All of these phases, all these phases of alchemy have something to say. They may not say any, they're not saying much about how to dye a statue gold or silver, or how to change its color, etc. Uh, they're not saying much about that, if anything at all, and they probably would have, wouldn't understand that. Uh, but but by they've caught on to this idea of of nature as a divine analogy. There's a very famous book with that as a title written in the 18th century, which was a huge hit with religious and pious people, um, because it, it enabled you to you 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 can come up with any hypothesis or theory about the universe. Um, but that doesn't alter what it means to us uh, as spiritual beings. The universe is communicating something to us other than, uh, you know, the light of the spectrum or its radiation um, computation or the numerical aspect. And the, other than the quantitative aspect of the universe, there is a meaning for us. And that meaning might might change in its language but there is but it's fundamental to the way we are mm. and and we develop spiritually through an engage we can develop we can develop spiritually through an engagement with what we call or as john lennon you say what we laughably call the real world you know? <laughs> um so so yeah i i i don't i don't 
when I look at alchemy to answer your question more directly, I, I see a, 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 a rainbow of possibilities of way, ways not only of thinking about alchemy, but of science in general. Mm. But I do, I do think it's very important to put alchemy back into the science and the science back into the alchemy. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible that I, I would try to wrap my head around the fact that, like you said, was the University of Bologna, I think it was in Italy. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Martelli. Yeah. Martelli's yeah, they, team, yeah. They um so they find chem uh reactions in chemistry that had hitherto been unknown. Yeah. And yet <laughs> this this stuff popped out of Egypt. Um it's <laughs> just so bizarre. It makes me wonder how much other um yes. solid uh solid like materialist science and knowledge has been lost over the years. Like how much other how many other things did they know that we don't know now? Oh well, I, I think the I think at the beginning of the book, I give an example. When I, I was taught for a time, uh, a, 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 I went to a lecture given by a, a famous English Egyptologist when I was 17. And he said, we all like evidence and uh, science particularly likes evidence. But he says, when it comes to history, I've, our evidential basis is, is as follows. And he, he gave the image of, imagine a whole load of piles of books and objects put in a vast fireplace and set fire to and burn and stuff going up the chimney. He said, what you end up with when the fire's gone out on the carpet in front of you, that is the nature of our scientific evidence. So, which in other words, one, one thing I've always found slightly annoying about historical epics and films is when people see films like Ben-Hur or whatever it is, or you know, Quo Vadis or any historical movie, recreation especially of the distant past the screen is always full if it were if if i i'd love to do a historical film where the the screen had lots of holes in that you know and somebody could say why is that the hole he says well that's the bit we don't know <laughs> right and uh, you could you could do a very interesting sort of theoretical uh, something kind of thing Jean-Luc Godard would have liked <laughs> to turn that idea into 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 a movie where somebody starts saying something and then the screen goes silent and they say why has it gone silent we don't know what he would have said there no oh, man yeah that needs to be done no, that's it, a weird thought too because also with tarot cards too like uh, there's there's always been talk about tarot cards remember a couple of years ago there was some some something found in a text or something like that i can't remember the specifics but it totally rearranged what we know about tarot cards and um it's just amazing how there's so little evidence for the past mm. that one single fragment of a document can rearrange how we see a whole continuity but there is one saving grace in 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 this picture of of lost knowledge uh and that is that the human imagination hasn't fundamentally changed in my view in 2000 years so if you when you get greater understanding through constant engagement and through honest seeking honest seeking not reputation seeking not pride seeking honest engagement things happen in your mind where you can see through their eyes just maybe for a second maybe something of that past comes through and the the power of the imagination of course can be abused very easily you can merely imagine oh you're just imagining it yes but we in order to write good history and, and good philosophy you have to have an imagination because you've got to have a mind meeting their mind if your mind is not 
meeting the mind you're studying, you have really nothing to say, you know, and, and, and that goes with the universe as well is the hermetic, uh, Hermes Trismegistus texts are saying this, the universe is mind, it's all mine. So if, if you don't have that engagement, many books I read, I can tell the person has merely acquired a memory of knowledge, but not the knowledge. That's mm -hmm. the difference between gnosis and ordinary science. Gnosis is an engagement direct with mind to mind. Uh, ordinary knowledge you can remember. It's, sometimes it's very difficult for me to do interviews because I've maybe written one or two books between the, the time of the interview and I, I can't remember everything that's in a book and all the rest of it. That's why I write the book. So it's there for you, you, you to pass it on. I don't have to remember it because it's in the book. Right. But, but if the interview is a good one, like this one, uh, I find just just it's possible to re-enter the mind, and I come out with things that maybe aren't I didn't even realize before, or hmm. images and so forth. So it's you know I, people talk about objectivity, and uh, and a friend of mine once startled me by the statement uh, when I was a, a student: "The world is full of objects." Just think about that. <laughs> the world is full of objects. Meditate on that phrase. The world is full of objects. It's actually a very fascinating idea. And by the end of your meditation, you'll come to wonder exactly whether, whether it's true or not. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, all right, in other actually... words, I'm talking about what people call objective knowledge and then this horrible phrase that's uh, abused, uh, subjective knowledge, which they'll right. say, well, that's, that's your opinion. Well, it may be, it may indeed be my opinion. It, it may be also something that I know. Right. <laughs> you could call it what you like, but I know it, you know, right. <laughs> or, I've or I've begun to understand it, which is more, more to the thing. That's what my books are all meant to do is to initiate or encourage this process of understanding. So much of the knowledge that's coming through on the internet and through especially 24 hour news the more where more is less, more is less, more is less. The simplistic things that people are yapping uh, all the time, the reaction of politicians to events, quick phrases, sound bites, all this, this shows total lack of willingness to understand anything. Mm -hmm. And if, if our world is going to disappear into a carbonized lump, it will be because we didn't bother to use the power we have to understand things hmm. and we didn't engage with the mind and it's up to us to do so so man that's that's a that'd be a fantastic place to to close this because that's a great <laughs> bit of wisdom but i have to ask one more question yeah, so man. you there's right now there's probably few people in the world who have spent their life as immersed in these topics of the esoteric spirituality religion you you've had you dedicated your career your adult life to it written all of these books and I just want to ask, if you're talking to a young seeker today, somebody who feels this call, this call to, to find the truth in this materialistic world where it's so hard to believe in that pull, what would your advice to them be, to, to, to a young person who wants to set out and start exploring reality? Don't never give up. And if you, if you do get back quick, uh, but always remember there is a price for everything uh, one, one undertakes and sacrifices have to be made from time to time. 
and to make a sacrifice means to make sacred it you've got to give your life to it you've got to lay your whole life on on the altar and be prepared for what comes um if you if your motives are not of the right kind we all get tempted uh and sometimes we give in etc um we have we can always repent or you know turn back again to the right path we we learn through our mistakes but my my advice to anybody is ask yourself seriously whether it's it's truth you really want if it is go go for it uh, but don't be surprised at the result because that will also teach you a great deal about the nature truth is an unwelcome guest at the table of the world um most people who've been killed for things is usually because they told the truth to somebody who didn't want to hear it mm. um so it's not necessarily going to be an, an easy time but then there is the rewards are profound and um but they they are not they're not always obvious uh so uh, but i would say absolutely you're to, what used to be called the great work is the transformation of the soul that's one of the images that's come out of this alchemical tradition which is very important and uh the better the metal the more it gets beaten you know <laughs> you want to make that steel has to be tempered so uh you've got to be prepared for a, a degree of suffering in the full faith that you will never be completely abandoned though there will be moments when you feel you are um but i i i i've talked about the the painful aspect i haven't talked nearly enough about the joys the joy of knowledge the gesavoir should never there, there is a wonderful sense occasionally you get it when you're studying when you you get that definite aroma of truth and it is beautiful and uh that is that's the kind of reward you you're going to enjoy somebody once said it was dean ing actually dean william ralph ing dean of st paul's who wrote that uh, the penalty for being a bad man is to be a bad man and that's what the bad men don't understand <laughs> so if you want to be a truthful man the joy of it the penalty the penalty for being a truthful man is that you at least will know the truth Hmm. not the whole of it maybe but you'll have a sense of the whole man you know? i couldn't have dreamed a better answer than that I man thank you so much that's 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 a perfect perfect thank you man my pleasure so um uh, is are there last thing are, are there any other projects you would like to fill people in on that you have coming up well my 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 next year will appear my study of the book of enoch and the whole tradition of the reception of the book of enoch mm. and uh, it's called the amazing books of enoch i might have the title beyond the universe because that's what it's really talking about beyond the universe um the amazing books of enoch the origin of jewish mysticism and uh and uh, yeah um pi yeah that's right enoch pioneer of jewish mysticism and the origins of christianity mm. and yeah. after and after that book i haven't i don't think i've got anything left to say in a book really I that, yeah I you're coming to the end i i i certainly i i don't know what you mean by the end but uh, well, the end I of the end of writing the end of writing yeah. um 
I, all I can say is I, I wouldn't, you know, what's that film? Never say never again. I don't, that I feel I've covered everything that's ever it really interested me. I'm not saying that everything that is of interest, mm -hmm. there are things that interest other people. I, for example, would never write about astrology uh, in detail because I'm not an astrologer. And I don't think I have enough sympathetic knowledge of it. It would take too long to acquire and I don't have the urge to. Likewise, I wouldn't write about tarot cards for the same reason. I don't feel I'm sufficiently acquainted to write a book about it. I mean, I've written about tarot, I've written about astrology, and there's a lot of it in comes up in my books. Um, but to, to make to make a, that my sole subject, I'd like to be authoritative. And I, I can't be authoritative if I'm dependent on other authorities. Mm. You know, it's got to be part of my it's got to be part of my search. So I've, you know, I've, I've always wanted to understand the origins of Christianity and, and the meanings of it. Um, but I'm not going to compete on Christian doctrines or ethics because I think there's millions of books on these subjects. I've been, I, 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 in some, I mean, the ethics of Christianity is too well trodden ground. It's not, it's not, we're not bad because of, we lack knowledge of Christian ethics. Uh, we're bad because we ignore our knowledge of Christian ethics. The, but the books are there if you want them. And the, the, obviously, I do, I've always enjoyed writing about the Bible and, and anything that relates to it has always uh, interested me. It seems to me a wonderfully rewarding mine. Um, as long as you approach it in your own, true, truly in your own way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and But with good knowledge, good knowledge base, which... Is, is being added to all the time. People say that that line, there's nothing new under the sun. And it's true that everything has been made. Everything has probably been thought fundamentally, but the, the, the picture becomes different with different kinds of knowledge coming in. So we, we can't, how can I say? Um, if I write about the Bible now, it's not the book I could have written in 1850 because there were so many assumptions about the bible then that we don't share today or don't see in the same way so i perhaps i could i might go back to some of those sort of things but i really honestly i think the book of enoch book is 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 ought to be sufficient um i, I quote ecclesiastes of, of making many books there is no end and with yeah. and with much knowledge cometh great sorrow and I've, 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 I know that's true, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm a writer. I'm supposed to write. And I'm, a, I'm a bit, I'm a bit uh, surprised that I've sort of reached a point where nothing compels me at the moment to write mm. about. But if somebody came to me and said, I would like you to write about this, that would interest me. I, mm. I you know, that's some some of the books I've written have come that way. That somebody said, "Oh, but why, what about that?" And I thought, that's a good, interesting idea. And I said, well, "Do you think you, people would like to read about that?" Oh, yes. It, I said, okay. Well, I'll give it some thought and see what happens. And if I get that bing sense that ah, this is going to be an interesting journey, I'm going to get somewhere with this, then I would write about it. Mm. I think. I, I think at the moment I'm sort of a bit exhausted. Exhausted, exhausted's pretty good. I, I, I feel, I feel I've exhausted for at least for now. Right. Uh, and I, I, I don't write books for the sake of it. I, some horrible person in Australia 
describe me as prolific as if it was some kind of something to be ashamed of um really? you know oh you know he's written so many books huh well they can't be any good then because he's written so many of them <laughs> man I, I i sweat over my books that's right. what i do and i don't see what's wrong with producing a book every year i mean if i was a band i want i would want an album out every year and a single you know right. why why, sh why shouldn't i produce a book every year people have said the same thing about stephen king you know it's a, there's always going to be people that want to chop down the successful man i think that's just like human nature you're you're right but the, the, it can be quite hurtful even even if it's an idiot criticizing you um <laughs> it, it, even if you know even if you know they're wrong of course very often these things get now they're printed on the internet and they stay up if somebody makes a comment i don't mind that they can say what they like and i can answer it but if they've printed something and people around the world read that and they've read that before they see something i've done then it's like those awful reviews you get on Amazon. You know, somebody doesn't like you. On goes their review. It's ill-considered, but somebody coming fresh to the subject reads that and might be put off. I sometimes am put off things because the reviews aren't very good. Mm. Uh, not, not that I believe the review, but it just it's, it sort of darkens the vision a bit. Uh, although if you're looking for something, you trust your own judgment always. Right. Well, from my counter perspective, before I sign off and let you go, is that I'm grateful that you've shared your journey in your books and um, we've all benefited from it. So uh, I, I think that perspective is just foolish. And uh, I'm grateful that you've put all this out there because those of us who don't have the, um, the resources or the time to delve as deep as you do, we get you, you bring it to us. So it's, well, that's that's yeah. fantastic, Jeff. I'd really very, very much appreciate that.